0: One, two, three. Welcome to Live Mike. Best of TPL Conversations, our regular Toronto Public Library podcast series featuring curated discussions and interviews with some of today's best-known and yet-to-be-known writers, thinkers, and artists recorded on stage at one of Toronto Public Library's 100 branches.
1: I've been interested in how you've been sort of talking about the tour, the tour itself is an opportunity for exchange mm-hmm. of stories with your readers, and, and how that's like that has a lot to do with how you thought of the book yeah. itself. Like, uh, in an interview, you described it as a conversation, yeah. as, um, as wanting to kind of welcome the reader into it rather than um, I think the phrase you used yesterday on the social was an identity or trauma vacation. Right. Um, so, when you're talking about and sharing such personal material, how do you kind of how do you help shape the conversation around your work to make sure that it, that it stays in exchange and mm. doesn't just turn into that?
2: Um, well, I think every project is, is different. Um, but with this, I mean, you know, the title, How We Fight For Our Lives, before you have opened the book, you know, I, I've said something to you about my intention,
0: mm.
2: um, that this is about you too, you know? And, and I, I, I do think we're all fighting for our lives, whether we know it or not. You know, Daniel, the man that, <laughs> see, he's fighting for his life as well, right? And his denial of that is what creates the danger, actually. Mm -hmm. As well as my denial, like I am delusional. (laughs) Oh my gosh, you know what I mean? I think I'm so in control. Um, So yeah, so I I wanted, I'm willing to go there about myself, but I think one thing was like setting the terms from the beginning, that everything you hear or read, you know, I want you to go either I identify with that or I don't, and then I want you to think about why. Mm. Yeah, and I I think that's one of the ways we can do it. Because yeah, with memoir, I mean, I don't know. I, I think sometimes, you know, it can feel like people are just like trying on different people's skin, different people's identity, and just, oh, this is, let me see what it's like to, you know, and it's like, no, that's not, that was not my intention. I I wanted to make um, an artful, compelling offering to an existing conversation.
1: Yeah, and I think you've absolutely succeeded in that. Um, I feel like it's fitting to start by asking you about the tour and travel, Mm -hmm. because one of the things that, um, that we talked about yep. and that like comes across really strongly to me in your work is this tremendously vivid sense of place. Yes. Um, it is yeah. a really tight organizational principle of this book. Every chapter is mm-hmm. like keyed to a specific city mm-hmm. and certain locales like the forest or even the library where <laughs> we find ourselves now <laughs> or like they are just it's a very deliberately scene driven yeah. um, sense of uh, the way that this book is constructed. So um, I wanted to ask how this like close and careful attention to place mm-hmm. helped you build the story.
2: Yeah, I mean, one place is just really important to me, even with poems. I personally uh, do not like the experience of reading a poem and it looks like just letters floating in white space. And that's how it feels. Mm-hmm. You're like, when is this taking place? What is the atmosphere? Or What, you know what I mean? Is it, are we hot? Are we cold? Are we dirty? Are we sweating? Like, So everything I write, I, I, I try to make, uh, make it clear that we're grounded somewhere, mm. right? So even, you know, like a, a college party is in yeah. some ways the most generic, but I want you, to, you to have a sense of what it's like to be in that space, that particular party in 19 or 2007. Um, and then, you know, the other thing I found is, you know, memory is so deceptive. Um, we, we uh, I think we rest a lot of our lives on false memories hmm you know, the stories we tell about ourselves. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so for me, um, place I found to be one of the tools to check myself, mm. you know? So you see it, like based on what I read tonight, it's like, okay, what would you be doing if you were at the kitchen? In the party, okay. well, I'd be getting a drink. Oh, you know. Oh, there were Jello shots. Oh, okay. From standing at that point at the counter, I could see the DJ. Okay, so what would you do? Oh, I would be shouting songs. Like that, that's where the details are coming from. Where did you do? What, what would you do if you got tired of that? Oh, I would weave through and end up on the porch. What did you do out on the porch? You know what I mean. And and so that's how. Within reason, I tried to um, control the details because as a poet, I'm like, ooh, this, da, 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 da. you know, like poetry is just like follow the sound, follow the image, and you don't know. But that's a, a a dangerous impulse Mm. (laughs) if you're writing the memoir. So for me, it was really about like, what would you be doing in this room? Where would you go next? You know, if you were in the living room in Louisville, Texas, and your mom was in her bedroom watching the TV, what would, you know, and so that's how I kind of kept myself on track.
1: Yeah, I feel it in your poetry as well, though. And like, I think a lot of the same... In reading the two books, I felt like a lot of the same locales resurfaced. Mm-hmm. There's, there's mm-hmm. the forest in Prelude to yes. Bruise is... You know That is very
2: intentional. The yeah. forest that... If you've read the book, um, thank you. The, the, the forest that you see um, with me and Cody and Sam is the forest that appears mm. in Prelude to Bruce. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And there's a lot of sweating in the book too. It so is that, hot. <laughs> It is always... It is
2: hot. And I come from... On my side, we just sweat. Sometimes I just, like when my grandmother Mildred and I, we would joke, it was like, sometimes it felt like it was the only thing we had in <laughs> Uh <laughs> We just sweat a lot, but I, I love that. You know what I mean? Like I, That's a detail I look for in movies and TV shows, and I love when they get it right, if it's set in the South um, and in the South I grew up in. I like seeing if they're catching the way we sweat there in mm. Texas. Or in Tennessee, because it's different from how you would sweat elsewhere. Right. You know? yeah.
1: I feel like it's unusual in, in just personal writing too to have that kind of granular attention to scene. Mm. It's something I associate with the work of, like, it really hit me when I was reading um, Alex Chi's essay collection. Ooh, mm-hmm. Very um, good. Very but, good it, you know, thank in, you. in your work as well, just thank an you. uncommon sense of place. So mm-hmm. thank you for that. Um, the book also has. It has, I mean, I'm glad we brought up the poetry collection because the book has a poet's affinity for economy of language. <laughs> it's told in 21 chapters, very, it's a slim volume overall, mm-hmm. um, and I'm interested in, uh, in a comment that you made in an interview where you said, I think there's something special about having a book that is a tight jewel. It becomes something that people can experience and then pass on and get a great conversation going. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what, what role did that idea of sort of a compact mm-hmm. conversational object play in the writing and structuring of the mm-hmm. book?
2: I mean, I think um, maybe more broadly, part of it is rooted in that if you're you know, not a straight, rich, cisgender man, everybody else is, we are all more aware of like earning our space and our time mm. and our real estate. We just are slightly more, con- however you go along that continuum, you know what I mean? Um, but you know, coming from a tradition in poetry, I don't. I, I just you know, I, I'm always having to earn a reader's time and attention. And you know, I, I try. To, I think, I mean, I. I'm not judging. I'm not saying there's anyone here. You're all special. We're all special. Um, but I think for a lot of people and a lot of good smart people, probably only read two books a year. And my sense is that chances are one of those books is going to be a classic and the other one's probably going to be like a nonfiction book about politics lately. That's my sense. And I'm not going to ask people to choose how they use their time. That's between them and their conscience. But, you know, I, listen, I, between events today, I've been like, should I be following this impeachment thing? You know what I mean? So, so, so that, that is the culture in which books then come in. And it's a book about me, mm. <laughs> right? Yeah. You know, So I, I just really tried to think about how, earning, how to earn and respect readers' time. Um, and part of that was like, I'm not going to write an overly, this is not going to be a, what is it? Uh, my Struggle, <laughs> Book 16, there's, there's not going to be like a Marvel universe built out of how we fight. Like, for our like You're not gonna hear Scorsese and everybody arguing about like the spinoffs of how we fight. Like I, I really wanted to keep the book tight and with purpose at every moment. And even to the point that I, you know, and I was nervous about it, but like opening the book with a poem. Mm-hmm. That literally lays out in many ways the entire trajectory of the book. I let you know at the very beginning like my mom um, was a lifelong smoker and she has a heart attack and she's going to die in the book. You need to understand this so that in the first chapter when I mention every day she gets home from work she doesn't even want to talk until she has that cigarette because it's how she dealt with stress as a single mom working two jobs. That's not just color right, because you've read the poem, you go, oh, this matters, you know, and so I was just trying to do that, and I just, I don't know, I think a lot of, a lot more writers, and it's not just men, but it's usually men, um, and their editors, especially when they become famous, uh, they start writing these big bloated books, yeah. um, that I think, you're wasting my time, you know, and my time's valuable, it is, <laughs> um, and, and so is yours, you know, so I just really tried to follow through on that.
1: Cool. Yeah. How did you decide on... Kind of the size of the units by
2: which the book would move was it? That I didn't know. Yeah. That was really organic. Um, the book was going to be even shorter, by the way. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> my editor, we decided to expand the book to to follow through on the totality of of my mom's story. Okay. You know, so the entire last act of the book was not going to be there. Oh. Um, but yeah, it would. Uh, it was just organic. You know, I think, and I'm like this with my poems. Um, I. <laughs> I know I finished a poem when I write something that makes me go, oh, my. (laughs) Well, you know what I mean? So that, like, I might as well make a weapon out of myself while I was like, line break, bitch. We We done did that. You know what I mean? Like, that was the end of my writing day that day. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like because you know, again, it's like you know when you did the damn thing, yeah. and and to me, you know, the 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 responses, the who, those moments you have, you know, when you're reading work. I think writers need to pay attention to them, that as well when they're creating it. And so, yeah, I try to pay attention to it. And, you know, like Yusef Komanyaka said that the, the ear is a wonderful editor. Mm. And, yeah, so I read everything out loud. I've, as I was writing, I read every <laughs> sentence of it out loud, you know. Anytime I basically had more than two paragraphs, um, once I felt confident enough, I would start reading and then go back and revise.
1: That's yeah. amazing. And I love the the sort of, like, the mic drop theory of editing yourself. Because <laughs> I feel like the, the common story is, is, you know, you or common advice is sort of you know you, you write till you feel good and then you like push yourself into the next sentence or the next paragraph so you have somewhere to start the next day you get a rolling start but this like I mean
2: one, you know one you that is why you find a good editor yeah you know and, and I was tremendously fortunate to find my editor in Simon & Schuster he's now at Macmillan uh John Cox oh what a joke my editor ended up being a blonde-haired blue-eyed straight white man from Connecticut ooh. <laughs> Go figure, a lesson for us all, you know? But he's a good listener, which most of those men are not. And uh, he was great, so we developed trust. So that was the other thing, that I could have my like, ooh, I did it, and then send it to him. And I would send the, I send the book in very small sections. Because oh. I was like, I'm not gonna do this thing where you don't hear from me for six months, and then I turn in like 150 pages, and then wait six more months. No, 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 I was texting him. <laughs> You know, with that, that paragraph that leads to the like the goddamn everyman, I texted it to him, oh my and God. I was like, Let me, "We we gonna be fighting for our lives? If you try to take this out the book, <laughs> you know." So it was a real like um, collaborative dynamic. He's wonderful. I mean, I was texting him as recently as a few hours ago. Yeah. You know, because I want to now share the joy that he has helped me create. Um, but, you know, I, I trusted that I could do what I do and he would let me know and I would have another opportunity, so many opportunities to edit and then copy edit and then pre-fruit the book. And he would always just, like, let me know. if He was like, I'll tell you when when it's, like, actually the last time. That you is know? good. Yeah, which will probably be, like, tomorrow. Be <laughs> we'll see.
1: Yeah, that's... Yeah. Okay, so the, this sort of... This exchange, this conversational communicative process mm-hmm. is, like, in the DNA of the book.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's... Um, I think sometimes people are thrown by me understanding the, the fact of my value. Hmm. I think sometimes people are thrown when I'm like, I understand that I'm an excellent writer. And I don't think that's arrogance. I think it's factual because I'm a reader first you know, and I I understand what's going on. I don't think I'm the only one. I think I'm one of many. I think I'm one of Legion, but it's a balance between understanding your value and understanding the value of a brilliant creative partner, Mm. you know, and that was true for my agent who was looking at the book before I submitted it. And then, you know, your editor, you, you can't work with people if you don't trust them to tell you the truth. Um, And I was really fortunate to find an editor that I felt that way. And then it was like, Let's go. That's amazing.
1: Yeah, I feel like I've learned so much from just how good you are at knowing your own sense of value. Like Mm -hmm. even even your um, your website bio. Oh, (laughs) can I can I quote it from memory? You memorized it. (laughs) It's just so memorable. Saeed Jones is that bitch.
2: Hey,
1: (laughs) he has written two books, both of which are excellent. And then it says, like, go read them? Yeah, yeah, and
2: then there's the links. To be fair, I was stoned on the couch. (laughs) But you kept it up. With my best friend who's, like, a web designer. And I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. But, yeah, I mean, I don't know. You know, I, you know, I stand on the shoulders of giants. And I will forever remember the moment I saw Tony Morrison on a YouTube clip in conversation with Charlie Rose. And and he was just lucky to be there. And he complimented. He complimented her at one point. And then you know I saw, I saw Toni Morrison in, in person in New York three times, the fortune, tremendous fortune mm. to see her three times um, while I was in, living in New York City. And people would compliment her. And, she, and that, that was the first time I saw it, but it wasn't the last. And they would just like go on and on and on and on. And sometimes she would say, thank you. Um, but often she would just like, <laughs> And the silence, like the way she could like do that and hold her breath. And as someone who I have these moments of bravado and then I feel myself rushing to try to like, but, but also thank you, you know, she didn't do that. She just went, you know, it was like saying, "Tony Morrison, it's November. And she's just like, <laughs> you know, and I think as a reader, as a future writer, as a gay black boy in America, Oh my God, to see an older black woman fully own her brilliance mm-hmm. and the significance of her brilliance. She didn't keep it to herself. She was sharing it with all of us. You know what I mean? Mexico loves Toni Morrison. Did y'all know that? If you watch the documentary about her, watch pieces of, I. Mexico loves Toni Morrison. You know what I mean? So she, she made a global contribution and I think she understood that it was a disservice to shrink from that, Mm -hmm. you know, to do this thing that we all so often do, which is try to comfort people at cost to our self-respect.
1: Yeah, and I feel like we don't see, like it's, it's tremendously and like, inspiringly political to be like, here I am, I'm a black writer, I am a fucking master craftsman. I
2: mean, look at, listen, I, this will be, the, I, probably not, but let's pretend that this is the only time I'll mention the 2020 presidential election in the United States, let's just pretend. <laughs> it is still radical for any of the women currently running for the Democratic nomination to get on stage and say, I am qualified, period. Mm-hmm. That is a radical statement. They say that, they show, thank you. They show up and people are like, how dare you? How dare you? You know how dare you even think you're you should be in this space, much less just say it. How dare you read a line from your resume? You know Kamala or Elizabeth Warren or Amy Klobuchar or, you know, how dare you? <laughs> so I, you know we see this, and I, I've been thinking a lot about what we can learn from joy mm. and praise um, because it's not a space where I think we have a very vibrant public conversation about all. what we can learn from it.
1: Yeah. yeah, so thank you for contributing to that.
2: See, I still was like, mm.
1: <laughs> I also, I, I'm, I'm now very sort of self-conscious that I've been so, com- yeah, complimenting it, it, you a lot. It's a journey, it's a journey.
2: We'll get there together.
1: <laughs> I mean, I'm not gonna suddenly start, you know, hurling insults. Um, okay. <laughs> Trash. <laughs> no. Um, Okay, so we were talking about, we're talking about place. We're talking oh. about how kind of intimately known and mapped the book is. Um, in contrast to that, there's a, there are a lot of scenes of you in your youth trying to understand your own queerness without having the words... To name it. Right. And there are so many people around you who are, as you as you say, hurling words at you, <laughs> trying to name what mm-hmm. is having its way with you. Mm-hmm. And there are so many instantiations of just like failed naming. You're called this, you're called right. this, your grandmother calls you worldly, the right. boys you hang out with call you a homophobic slur. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm just interested in this pattern of, of, of failed naming as it mm-hmm. kind of frustrated the process of coming to self-knowledge and why yeah. you kind of chose to use that as... A figure that kept coming up.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I think one, I think Toni Morrison in part the way she uses names and and throughout her work I think is interesting and drew my attention to it. That the failing of names and the way names kind of become curses or burdens or destinies. You know, Saeed, and it depends on who you ask, um, depending on, you know, where in the world they're coming from. But, you know, Saeed in Arabic, you know, it means happy and fortunate happy could mean gay, uh, you know, it, it means good news, it means like the leader bringing it, it has all these, but a very positive, you know, connotation, and when I've struggled with depression as I have, I, you know, the, one of the insults that I hurl at myself is like I'm not living up to my own name. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think about that a lot, and the fact that we name kids often with great meaning before we've met them, right? don't know anything about these children except they came from us. And here we are, like, here's the name I'm giving you, you know, and then here's the blue or the pink blanket, you know, it just, it all just snowballs really quickly. And so I wanted to capture the experience of, that I think young people still have. I think young people often just feel like th- that we're just yelling at them constantly. <laughs> You know, I think young people, especially young people who are really curious about the world, often feel they're just surrounded by these tall people who are just like it's like the, dictating. the Peanuts cartoon. Yeah, yeah. wow. Yeah, yeah, totally. And um and and that was a lot just anyway, you know, especially like from loved ones. Mm-hmm. Um and and so I'm interested in how we can try to love people and do loving things and it can still be hurtful. Mm-hmm. Um, and and certainly how strangers, you know, like a, a pastor emerges in the book and you see how little he knows about me. Yeah. And then he just does something just life-changing, you know, from my grandmother and my mother and I, knowing so little. Um, so I, I think that's interesting. And maybe it's my way of uh, engaging a conversation about stereotypes or Mm. or whatever but i i I didn't want to do that in a didactic way yeah so i thought it was just helpful to kind of ground things in my my own experiences
1: yeah Uh, a passage that um that is very powerful and comes up a lot uh in that i've noticed comes up a lot in interviews and press for this book is um is the line about how um there should be a a hundred words for the way that a black boy can lie awake at night Mm -hmm. um and there aren't, but what there are instead are just a kind of, yeah. there are a hundred different things that you were called that uh-huh. you are All not. All kinds of slurs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I guess, too, like, why I was interested in that moment is because the people around you, the the objects around you, like the Baldwin novel, like mm-hmm. the photograph of your mother's friend, they they seem to have a kind of knowledge that you can't quite access yet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, yeah. And I just... Yeah I mean uh, listen like when I say like I did the best I could with what I was getting, I did feel I earned that line because you see I'm like I'm definitely trying yeah. to I'm going to the library I'm you know it's like holding on to like the, the tail of my mom's dress like asking her questions I um, I'm, I'm running into hookups and relationships um, because sex is fun uh, and I deserve but also um, because At the time that I was growing up, like 1998, you know, was when I turned 12 and so all of this, um, you know, marriage equality doesn't exist, was never going to happen. It was never going to happen. You know, um, uh, sodomy, sex between two men was illegal technically in the state of Texas where I grew up until I was a junior in high school um, when it was, uh, you know, shut down by a Supreme Court decision. That's Lawrence v. Texas. Mm -hmm. Um, And I knew that, you know, um, so when you're, you're seeing all of this and there wasn't, you know, Pose and, and Moonlight and, and Lena Waith and Jan, all of these things now and these people who have visibility. That was not happening. Will and Grace premiered um, that year um, and then and Queer as Folk um, and again shows about white, upper middle class men, people mostly um, in the East Coast and Will and Grace, you know, think about the racism that was a part of that show with Karen's um, Latina. Um, made every time she's on every time she's on screen, there's a racist joke about her. You know, so even the show where I was like, "Gay people," it was like, "Oh, I don't like that," and it was a big deal because in Texas, I understood racism through the context of hearing how everyone was talking about the Mexicans, mm-hmm. plural. You know, so it was deeply painful. Even in the show that was supposed to give me hope, so I say all this to say that even sex, even hooking up. Uh, with a hot dad in the uh, public restroom at the Louisville Public Library uh, multi-purpose space um, <laughs> was among all the other things it was an attempt just to find someone else who knew something about me that I was trying to figure out. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Can we talk about the library? Let us! Yeah. <laughs> um, there, there are only so many locations in this book, but the library comes up Many Twice? Times. Two or three I times? I think three, at least three times. Uh-huh. There's, it's where you go as, as a young man to, mm-hmm. find, uh, to try and find information about right. being gay. Right. Um, it is where you have the hookup with the hot dad. Mm-hmm. Um, and later when you're in college, it's a, it's a kind of oh, refuge right. for you.
2: Oh yeah. my goodness, I didn't <laughs> even think about that. Yeah, I start hiding in my college library in the yeah, stacks. and doing
1: like mm-hmm. really deep formative reading. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So what, is, what place does... I mean, space hold for you, you know,
2: I just, I think, and the reason I refuse to, to, as Tony Cade Bombera said, like, do not leave the arena to the fools. These public spaces are so important. Oh my God. You know, I... Uh, Imperfect as my experience was, particularly early in the book, when you see me go and I, I find like sociological books about homosexuality, homosexuality, um, and they were, all about HIV AIDS. They were all out of date and they scared the hell out of me Mm. and put truly the fear of death in me, which was not fair and not deserved. Um, But it was a place I could go. I went back, I spent so, you're right, I spent so much time at the library. I don't even include that usually in high school, I would get to school early Um, For almost all four years of high school and about an hour early before the morning extracurricular activities, because clubs with me, just to be in the library. Mm -hmm. I just think it's, for me, it was a comforting space. No one ever asked, as a young black man, you know, no one ever said, what are you doing here? I never felt that, you know, I wasn't being followed around by a security guard, which would happen at the mall, you know, for example, where other teenagers felt comfortable killing time. The library was my space and there was just so much. You know and so i loved it and yeah i just you know we have to fight for these spaces y'all and i know you know that um and yeah it's just important to me to the point that in some ways i take it for granted you know but i just think um an interesting thing about representation you know we're really focused on tv and film mm-hmm. um but you know there's such a radical tradition in book publishing you know so and i think another country was an example of me finding this book that was And for its time, incredibly transgressive and just like light years ahead of every other form of media Um, I found at the time. I mean, just to be a 12 year old boy in the suburbs um, in Texas in 1998 and, and read this book where Rufus is having sex with white women. I was like, oh, my goodness oh my gosh, you know, um, where my grandmother, when I was a little kid, she would get mad at me, even befriending white girls at school, mm. because she would say, you've got to be aware of their fathers. Oh, good. That's what I get. kindergarten, by the wow. way. Um, that's what I grew up. So seeing interracial relationships was like, whoa, wow. And then he like has sex with men. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> and then he's having sex with women again. And I was like, what is going on? <laughs> you know, cause I didn't know what bisexuality was, you know, but it just, just that the rep, forget the plot, forget the language, just the existence of people living lives that until then felt like we're written in invisible ink or something, mm. you know, um, was really powerful. And, and libraries, and my mom's home library, right, um, are just really important, you know, to young people, especially to kids who I think were like me, where, um, you know, I was so afraid, like I said earlier, of messing up. yeah, <laughs> And I, I was afraid to go to talk to adults and, and to ask for questions. But, you know, even my grandmother, for all of her um, <laughs> rigor, <laughs> Um, and how she raised me, she would just let me go at the library. Yeah. She just, we'd go in and she would go one way and I would go the other and I could pick up the Bearstein, you know, all of that, <laughs> I loved it. You know, and that for kids, um, I think is incredibly powerful. You know, those first few moments of, I got this because I found it and I want it. Mm. You know,
1: yeah. Yeah. Um, just, you mentioned the sort of difficulty of, of asking questions of, of, of kind of, open communication. Mm -hmm. Um, There was a a line um, in your NPR Fresh Air interview, which is a great interview. Thank you. Um, Shout
2: out to my girl, Terry.
1: (laughs) You guys have (laughs) such great chemistry. Um, But uh, you describe the kinds of moments that you're interested in as a writer, and I thought this was really fascinating. Um, Moments when people are making their best effort, but there's still miscommunication. Um, and I feel like we see a lot of really moving instances of that in this book between you and your mom. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if you could speak to that a little bit.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I'm always, uh, you know, for for six years I worked at Buzzfeed News as as an editor, LGBT editor, uh, executive culture editor, and then I was hosting a morning show. So I was just seeing, you know, books, but also just narratives, and and kind of getting a sense of what we're what is well covered and what isn't. Mm. And you know, what I realize is that we don't have enough, there's, there certainly are examples, but we don't have enough of um, examples of books uh, that spend time with the more subtle spaces in our relationships, like loving, generally healthy relationships. This isn't a book where, you know, I come out to my mom and I'm kicked out of my house, You know, for example, that's, you know, that's huge. You know, Um, this isn't a a family of physical violence, that kind of abuse. You know what I mean? It's generally really warm. My mom and I have a great relationship in many regards, except for this one thing. Mm. And so what does it mean, you know, when there's a more subtle hurt you know, and really I, I use the metaphor of silence as this, this silence amidst all the other wonderful music and noise of your relationship with the person, that silence kind of metastasizes. Mm. And so I was interested in that. Like, what does it mean when people are doing their best? My mom, I think was a good mom, you know, she was warm, she would ask me questions. One day we were, and this is just to underscore like how open we were in many other regards. Once I was in high school, she was driving, we got to a red light. Stopped him, and we were like listening to music on the radio. And she stopped at the red light, and she just turned to me. We were silent, and she just said, "Do you masturbate? <laughs> you should." And then the light turned green, and she just drove off. And I mean, she might as well have kicked me out of the car. I was like, "What? A legend." That was it, a legend. You know, so that was that's just an example of kind of our candor and yeah. our kind of contemporary, but but. Queerness, my being gay, even when I came out to her, she just couldn't do it, right? And so what does it mean when the same woman who can have that kind of moment can't handle, you know, her son who's, I don't know, uh, a sophomore or junior in college Mm. at university, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, she freezes up when I try to bring up my boyfriend's brother, I don't even bring up my boyfriend, just his brother to try to kind of bring in, you know, and she just, it was like deer in headlights. Yeah. And so I was just interested in that because I think that's something, you know, Thanksgiving's coming up in the U.S., you know, in the holidays, right? And I think we do this a lot. We, we deal with these silences where we go home for the holidays or for whatever. And I think we all know, you know, there's like a checklist in our head. <laughs> Of like, don't talk about that, don't talk about that. Blah, blah, blah. And what happens when that checklist is like, like parts of your identity, mm. you know? And I think we're made to like, well, it would be rude to like, don't, don't, you know, saddle, you know, your grandmother with X or your old uncle with, you know, how he gets. But I think, I think the cost of that polite silence, I think it's too high. Because yeah. we see that the, the dynamics, the questions, the harm that we are often experiencing in real time, that doesn't pause for the holidays. So why should we?
1: Yeah. Know? I'm just listening to you now, so struck by the, when you said that there were sort of gaps in loving relationships that you felt weren't addressed or when, when you were talking about how People have so many demands on their time, so they're you know this is the kind of story I'm going to tell about myself Mm -hmm. to put into the world. Just the like depth of like ethical thought that went into putting this book into the world. Thank you. That's that's tremendous. Yeah, (laughs) I suspect that that is uncommon.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know, maybe it's an uncommon time, right? I mean, it's it's really not for nothing that the entire time I was writing this book, from the time I was like editing the the. Early drafts that became proposal, and then sold it, and then was writing to its completion. Um, I was in a newsroom, mm-hmm. surrounded by one, and editing, and you know, working with other editors and wonderful reporters. That was just always happening. And then 2016 happened, and you know, I mean, we're we're seeing uh, the the destabilization of people's, you know, and and like, is it the truth and fake? All of this, and I was just seeing like, even when you do your job. <laughs> If if you if people don't like it, many people will just assume it's fake or a lie, you know. Mm-hmm. So it was like, gosh, yikes. So I felt just in that space. I, I rather I don't know. Rather than feeling um, scared, I don't. Know, I just wanted to really speak to it and really do the best I I could um, to document the truth as I experienced it. And again, and that is why, you know, I say like, memory is such an unreliable narrator. It just is, right, those lies. And so that's why, like that with my grandmother, for example, at the church, you know, there's a tremendously important scene. Oh my gosh, so traumatic and life-changing. And then I'm like, I don't remember what happened next. And then I'm like, and then we're in the car. You know what i mean and my goodness as a writer it drives me crazy that i can't remember what happened from the you know the moment we walked off the pulpit in that church and, and, and into the parking lot a minute you know i don't know 10 minutes maybe mm. i don't know what happened and gosh i sure would like to yeah. <laughs> but you know i felt that it was more important to go i don't know and to tell that to the reader so that they understand that what i am telling you Um, I am really confident in, you Mm -hmm. know, and I do that with my mom a few times, too. Yeah. So I don't know. It's just how I figured out how to uh, tell this story. But I hope and I trust that I think any writer right now worth their salt is is thoughtfully interrogating themselves Um, because I see it's really easy to lie. You know, you could be like writing just really quickly, trying to meet a deadline and you just and you haven't given yourself time for a memory to come as me, like often I'm asleep. You know what I mean? Or I'm in the shower, and all of a sudden I'm like, "Oh my gosh, that happened there, not there." Mm. Or, or powerful, you know, the um, there's a moment where I remember years before my grandmother told me to stop holding my books like a girl,
0: right?
2: My library books like a girl, and I said something sarcastic to her, and she backhanded me. And I'd forgot about it. I had written about it. I wrote about it in essay form for BuzzFeed wow. years ago and forgot about it. And only when I was writing the Memphis 1999 section did it come back to me, you know, because I had time. And yeah. so write slow. You know, my theory is James Frey is a real fast writer. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh!
0: Click clock click clock Yeah.
1: I want to ask you about... Ohio. I know, I know everybody <laughs> yeah. asks you. You oh, recently okay. moved from New York to Columbus, mm-hmm. Ohio, the land yep. of tall, big-bootied, corn-fed men. They are so tall
2: and so big-bootied. <laughs>
1: um, I'm, I'm curious to ask about it as part of just your trajectory as a writer. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you were working at BuzzFeed. Yep. You went from an MFA program to an NYC media job. Mm-hmm. Um, and Top now, high school
2: in between then, too. Right. Yeah.
1: And um, now... Now that now that you've moved to Ohio, mm-hmm. you've said that all you all you have to do is live and write.
2: Because mm-hmm. I can afford that. Yeah. How
1: has that changed your identity as a writer? Your
2: ooh yeah, I, well it's new. I mean you know I moved there in September. I visited last uh, October for work. Um, I was doing a road trip series with the uh, morning show I was hosting for Buzzfeed News, and I just went. And I think I, I don't. All I know, I went back and I was like, what was going on? And I realized right before that trip was uh, Dr. Christine Blasey Ford's testimony, mm-hmm. shook me, really did. You know, I, I see the word indelible in print and my eyes start stinging. It was, it was a moment where for everything that has happened, I, I just think something broke. Yeah. And I said, like, you know, what has been working until this point is no longer working. And because I've struggled with depression and um, really struggled with mental health, as so many of us are, you know, and realizing that I could now afford, you know, financially, because of where my career is, I knew that like it wasn't like people were going to like stop publishing my work because I wasn't living in New York City. I could afford to move. I've traveled. I've circled the globe in 2012. After it's like just you see at the end, but I after my mom passed away, um, I, I traveled by myself for eight months and circled the globe because I was like, I got to reintroduce myself to this world without her Mm -hmm. you know so having done all of that I ended up in Columbus Ohio and I didn't go there looking for a new home but I found it and it was just everything lined up and so I don't know I mean so one I think it is always powerful when you feel your intuition you respond to your intuition and then you were given the gift of time to see. damn it, you were right. Isn't that a powerful mo-? And I know, right, people are nodding, because it's like, you know what that's like. And then you're like, I'll do it again. You know? So I think as a writer, which is all about risk taking, mm. and poetry in particular, um, I think that dynamic, the intuition, following through and being confirmed, it empowers everything, because I think I'm on to something. And so yeah, it's the, the economics are great, it's nice, the guys are hot, Grinders lit. Um, But just beyond that, I I feel so self-confident in my ability to make decisions about what's working for me. And that's true for all kinds of things. But of course, you know, as I try to figure out what I want to do next, I'm writing poems. Um, that is why I, I'm writing more than I have in years, honestly.
1: That's amazing. Yeah. That is tremendously powerful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Tasha.
2: Oh my god, <laughs> can we, I know you have questions, but can we applause her as oh well? Oh god, thank you. Oh. Thank you.
0: On the Live Mike episode page, livemike.ca, you will find biographies of featured writers, guests, and hosts, as well as links to TPL's collections or other episode-related materials. For all of TPL's podcast series, go to tpl.ca slash podcasts. Toronto Public Library is one of the world's busiest urban public library systems. Every year, more than 20 million people visit our 100 branches in neighborhoods across the city and borrow more than 32 million items. Live Mike, Best of TPL Conversations, is produced by the Toronto Public Library. Episodes are produced by Natalie Curtis, Jorge Amigo, and me, Gregory McCormick. Technical support by Michelle DeMarco and George Paniotu. AV support by Jennifer Casper and Mesvin Baisisu. And marketing support by Tanya Oleksin. Music is by Worst Pop Band Ever, also known as WPBE. I'm Gregory McCormick, manager of cultural and special event programming at Toronto Public Library. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for another episode of Live Mike, Best of TPL Conversation.